on the web at weru.org. Support for WERU comes from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine, an independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media. The time is 3.59 and 49 seconds, almost 4 o'clock on the dot, and you are listening to Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. And that is not my theme music. That one is. This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Tuesday, August 1st, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. Last week, WERU held our third annual Maine storytelling event at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport as part of that town's Wednesday on Maine summer series. The theme this year was My Maine, the state as experienced by local storytellers. Today, we bring you Act One, which featured Sandra Bowden-Dillon, David Weida, Anu Dudley, and Leslie Christeller. Paula Key of Wednesday on Main kicked things off. Good evening. I'm Paula Key, and I run the Wednesday on Main program. And I want to thank everyone for coming, and in particular, thank you for your generous donations, all of which go to WERU Community Radio, our favorite community radio. have a few thank yous tonight. Uh, first, I'd like to thank my season sponsor, which is Darlings of Augusta, Bangor, and Ellsworth, because they care and they do so much for the communities all around us, and they're very generous, so we thank them very much. Couldn't do it without them and without the town of Bucksport. They're my other sponsors, and I thank them again very much. That's all the applause you need. But I have a few other people to uh, thank very quickly. My volunteers, I couldn't do it without them. David Weida and his amazing shortbread, which you were all enjoying. Yes. David is the speaker tonight, and uh, he also runs the Williams Pond Lodge Bed and Breakfast, Bucksport's only bed and breakfast, and you can order shortbread anytime you want to. He'll just see him next uh, in the lobby. Uh, what else do we have? I want to thank Amy Brown and Susan Pierce and Matt Murphy of WERU. They put this whole program together. I just live here, right? So uh, thanks to these guys. We have on August 23rd, Penobscot Theater Company and Amy Rader, who's also one of your storytellers, is uh, putting this show together. They're going to be here with an improv show. Please come, please bring kids, because it's mostly for the kids. Uh, they get involved, they get up on the stage, they do a lot of fun things, so please join us for that. And Amy said, if you have questions, you'll see her in the lobby, intermission or after the show. Uh, let's see. We're also partnering again with WERU in September to bring you a music documentary film every Wednesday night during the month of September. And they are going to be fabulous films, so watch this space. Uh, let's see what else. Um, WERU, as you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but if you're not a member, join, be a sustaining member, help keep them floating because, uh, as you know, funds are always in jeopardy. So we appreciate them, and we're so glad they're they're here with us. I'd like to quickly uh, note the presence of the new executive director at the Grand in Ellsworth, Mr. Nick Turner. He's been in, Ells in Bucksport all day long, and he's decided that he's in love with Bucksport, like everybody else. 
And now I'd like to introduce Amy Brown, who's your hostess for the evening. Thank you. Thanks, Paula, and a big round of applause for Wednesday on Main, who put together these things every Wednesday night, and the Alamo Theater. Tonight's theme is My Maine, the state as experienced by local storytellers. We have a blend of people who have been here before, like Sandra, and people who are telling stories for the first time. And for those of you who were here last year, you have met Sandra Bowden uh, Dillon. She was born in... Well, let me tell you more about Thank her. Thank you. I'll take anything. <laughs> uh, Sandra was born in her grandmother's home in Waterville. Her father was in the Army Air Corps during World War II, so the family moved around a lot. But they eventually ended up settling in her grandfather's home on Hardscrabble Hill in Orland. The family made a living by farming, cutting wood, lobstering, working at the mill. And while everyone was helping out with all the chores that go into running a farm, they told each other stories to pass the time. That's how she became a storyteller. Uh, Sandra is now retired from teaching. She resides in Philadelphia the rest of the year, but comes up to the family camp on Lake Alamusic in the summertime. And last year, you heard some of her stories. Tonight, you're going to hear some of the stories that her mom wrote. Her mom was also a teacher, and some of these are available at the Bucksport Library at the University of Maine Library. Welcome back, Sandra Dillon, and thank, thank you for being here, and let's get started. Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me now? Yes. yes. My mother grew up the eldest of three sisters on her family farm outside of Waterville, Maine, where Thomas College stands now, on the lush, flat Kennebec River flood zone. At that time, fine wives were considered by the men people who didn't have to work because they were always in the house. My mother wrote this poem in tribute to her mother. It's called, I Don't Work, by Minnie Bowden. <laughs> I don't work, she said. I'm a housewife. What did I do today? I fed the pigs and chickens, gathered eggs, made the beds, swept and dusted, got three meals for six, and cleared the aftermess. I picked a quart of raspberries and made some jam. Whenever a hayload came to the barn, I led the horse that lifted the forks of hay into the loft. Of course, she smiled. I had the help of three little farmers. No, I don't work. <laughs> when you're a child, earning money is difficult because you're a child. You received your weekly allowance for doing your usual daily and weekly chores, on the farm, there were many chores that everyone did together, but no extra money. Having a chance to earn outside money was a really big deal. This is my mother's story. Things are not important. Oh, that's later. I went too many pages. This is called Gathering Joy by Minnie Bowden. Do you think they can do it? Mum asked Dad in the swirl of a busy day. Of course they can, my dad replied, before he turned to us three girls, 11, 9, and 5. What do you want? The cost's a dollar. 
Berets, we cried, alive with dreams. Good, you can earn berets if you will pick enough string beans for Mr. Wood at a penny a pound. With visions of berets on our heads, with dinner boxes and picking pails in hand, we hurried to the growing ground once the dew had dried. Green beans beneath the leaves, green beans by the handful. Can't hurt the vines, can't pick the little ones. Must get all the ready ones, get them by the handful. A hundred pounds is a lot of beans. <laughs> hurry, hurry, think, beret. Straddle the road, bend over and pick, think, beret. Kneel beside the road, pick and kneel walk, think, beret. Sit beside the road, pick and slide along, think, beret. Sun gets hot, arms get itchy, think, beret. Dump full pails of, into burlap bags, start over, think, beret. The final weighing on the second day brought us to our goal of funds. For one beret apiece, and Saturday, we found the store with dollar berets and chose one blue, one red, one beige. Sunday, three girls walked into church wearing berets. One blue, one red, one beige, capping joyous smiles and answered prayers. <laughs> I grew up on a farm on Hard Scrabble Hill with the hills and ledges and boulders of Penobscot River. Most of the houses in the area had no running water, were heated by a wood stove, and had an outside toilet. But none of us felt poor. Our parents had taught us that we could have anything we wanted as long as we were willing to work for it. Sometimes very long and very hard. As soon as we were big enough, about fourth or fifth grade, we were allowed to work for various neighbors on their farms. That is, as long as we did all of our own chores, no matter how hot and tired we were after working all day for somebody else. But it was extra money! In June, we picked strawberries, five cents a quart. In July, we picked green beans, 50 cents a bushel. In August, we raked blueberries, 50 cents a bushel. At a very young age, we learned to be dependable, arrive early as the best picking was assigned to the first come bases, pick or rake cleanly and efficiently while not hurting the plants, bring a jacket and hat plus food and water for the entire day. If you didn't do a good job, you were told to leave and not come back. Very embarrassing. That person was the talk of the town for the whole week. We were always praised if we deserved it, and even though adults could produce more, Children were treated with the same respect as the adults, as the crop needed to be harvested by all willing hands. Children can no longer do this work under the age of 16, as the Civil Liberties Union said it was abusive to children. By the end of the summer, I had earned enough money to buy my school clothes and shoes, plus my Christmas presents. I was very proud of all my accomplishments. My mother was a teacher all her life. Her second teaching job was in South Penobscot, um, at that, across from the, the, the uh, old brickyard, which was still functioning at that time. This was a co-op school where students from the Eastern State Casting Normal School 
could observe and practice teach. The Maine Maritime Academy is now in its place. In rural Maine in the early 30s, not only did the teacher teach 30 to 60 kids grades 1 through 8 in one room, supervise recess luncheon activities, lug two 10-quart pails of drinking water from the nearby well morning and noon. Each child had their own drinking cup to dip into the pail to get your drinking water. Stoke the wood heater or stove or whatever it was. Sweep the school and outhouse floors. Sometimes deliver children to their homes in her personal car, no matter what the weather. This is called One Thing More by Minnie E. Bowden. Rain and ice blew hard against the windshield. The wipers working furiously just barely let me see as I drove over wet and icy glare on rough and winding country road to take a load of children home from school. The air within the car was still and tense when headed south halfway up a crooked hill, the car abruptly turned and headed north down the hill. From the breathless back seat, a fourth grader yelled, Do it again! Do it again! <laughs> My mother was a reading director of MACD 34 in Belfast for many years. She started the first Title I and Title II reading programs in the country. There are some lovely old sea captains' homes in Belfast that were robbed of their oriental rugs while their owners were away. The thieves were never caught. The townspeople just shrugged, tossed it off, saying, well, it was just rugs, only things. Things are not important, only people. That attitude made my mother furious. No one knew what history or personal cost those rugs meant. When my mother was angry, she wrote a poem. She didn't know anything about oriental rugs, but she knew what family silver meant. So she wrote what she knew. Things are not important by Minnie Bowden. Over three generations of memories were traced on every piece of silver that robbers stole the day the family picnicked on Cape Rosier's shore. Silver's only things, folks sniffed. Things are not important, only people. They had seen and used the silver, but never thought or never knew how it came upon the table. Hours of muscle and sweat and making hay, milking cows, cleaning barns, pushing the car on zero mornings to rush to the mill, to make the paper, to make the money, to keep the family going and provide the special gifts for special times. Hours of early rising to fire the stove, make the biscuits, beans, and apple pie. Hours of cleaning, canning, sewing by over three generations of wives and mothers rewarded on birthdays and holidays with a piece of two of matching silver. Hours of ceremonial polishing when women and girls gathered to rub and shine recall the wonder of each gift, recount the occasions of each dent and scar. Remember when this tea set came for Graham on that stormy Christmas Eve? Remember when the coffee urn was Mama's anniversary surprise? Remember when this ladle came, a hostess gift from Auntie Jean? Remember when this fork was bent for moving cork from wedding wine? Remember when the serving spoon was scratched? 
Tom used it for digging worms. <laughs> Remember when this napkin ring was dented? Susie cut her teeth upon it. The silver brightened all festivities and graced the funeral gathering. Vibrations of laughter, chiding, stories of living and dying etched themselves with time's patina. No, not pieces of silver, but people pieces stolen. When I was a child, most of the women made many of the family clothes and linens. Mine were made from the colorful material of the grain bags that held the grain that daily fed our 600 plus chickens. I felt very lucky to have a new piece of clothing occasionally. Many children only received new clothes at the opening of school, Christmas, Easter, and summer. If your body grew faster than the occasional clothing change, especially boys, tough. My mother always closed her readings with this poem, and so will I. Everything you've heard tonight has been based on real people and real stories, and so is this. Car and Woman, 1928, by Minnie E. Bowden. When Elsie needed cloth and thread, her husband mowing hay, she took the ford reluctantly and started on her way. Though bumping through great dusty clouds, she never saw the dirt. Her mind was not on driving, but on making that new skirt. When going up the rocky rise on Joshua Penny's hill, the car began to sputter, cough, then shudder, and stood still. There, Elsie sat and fretted why the darn thing wouldn't run and how she'd ever get to make the skirt she wanted done. Up came old Joshua Penny, stiff from picking garden sass, peeped down the dark, dry pipe and said, I think she's out of gas. <laughs> Will it hurt? asked Elsie sweetly with an apprehensive smile to run the car without the gas for just another mile? <laughs> he looked at her without a smile and said as he departed, I reckon it won't hurt the thing if you can get it started. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. That was Sandra Dillon Bowden at WERU's storytelling event at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport last week. The next storyteller was David Weida. David grew up in Leavenworth, Kansas, and moved to Bucksport in 2003, where he developed the Williams Pond Lodge Bed and Breakfast, his solar-powered, off-the-grid ecotourism B&B. He has played his Highland bagpipes throughout the region for the past 14 years and also loves to bake Scottish shortbread for his cookie-loving friends. A longtime political activist and community builder, David served as a national delegate for Bernie Sanders at the Democratic National Convention last year, which is why his shortbread was there at the storytelling event we held last year, but David himself was absent. He says he loves living a fully engaged life under the starry skies of Maine, and his story is called Beneath Maine's Starry Skies. Thank you very much, Amy, and WERU, and Wednesday on Maine, and the Alamo Theater, and Bucksport, and uh, Darlings, and all of you for showing up. Um, last year, when I was invited 
Amy and I immediately hit on the notion that I would be in Philadelphia at the National uh, Democratic Convention, so wouldn't it be cool to Skype from my hotel room back to the Alamo Theater? And we actually put that into the works and thought about it, and uh, as it turned out, it probably is great that we didn't try to do that. It would have been uh, very frantic for me to run away from the convention hall to my hotel um, the day after we did the um, state-by-state vote for a a candidate nomination. I brought a sign with me because uh, ever since an event that happened last November, I've been running all over the state to every rally that I could find that uh, gave me a chance to express myself, not necessarily as a storyteller, but as a loud-mouthed uh, activist. So uh, I decided I'd bring a souvenir from the uh, We Love Science march that I went to in Orono a few weeks ago. Science lovers in the audience. Great. As a child, Growing up in the 1960s in Leavenworth, Kansas, I was able to walk outside at night and look up to a full sky of stars. Beginning at a very young age, my dad or mom or older brother would often help me find the Big Dipper or airplanes flying over and also stand with me in comfortable silence, watching for shooting stars and simply enjoying being out in the yard in the sweet night air, often being silly and laughing even singing, with people who I knew loved me and made me feel safe, and clearly valued my presence on those special nights. I have nice memories of being awakened in what seemed like the middle of the night to me, and going outside with my mom to watch the eclipse of the moon through binoculars. Sometimes we would stay out until nearly dawn, watching the stars and clouds swirling over us, talking about everything or nothing. The natural world both inspired my questions and provided sufficient answers. When Carl Sagan's Cosmos series aired on PBS in 1990, I became completely engaged. He told us there are billions and billions of stars and that each one of those stars is a sun. Just imagine that and we are stardust. Revel in our mutual smallness and shared unimportance. And celebrate our common humanity as reason enough to create beauty, seek joy, and live with passion as we share this precious planet on which we spin out our short lives. This planet, which Carl Sagan referred to as the pale blue dot. I moved to Bucksport, Maine, in 2003 and have been gazing at the sky over my sweet property on Williams Pond for the past 14 years. Each night I look up, the wonder and amazement seems new and sparks my imagination with a freshness that leads to brand new questions and inspires elegant, rational thought and profound, poetic sensuality. I can breathe in the sweet, clean air of the pond and forest, filling my lungs and my heart and my spirit with a bit of new stardust from the vast cosmos around me. And sometimes, a loon will call out from the pond, or a beaver will slap its tail on the water, or an owl will ask, Who, who, who are you? (laughs) And sometimes, a lone coyote will offer up its howl, and perhaps several others will join the chorus. 
and I will feel that magical shiver run up my spine. And I will feel connected to that loon, that beaver, that owl, and those coyotes, because we all share the same stardust. And we each fill some niche of equal significance or insignificance on this beautiful planet. And I love that magical shiver, and I crave it every night. I am joyfully proud of Williams Pond Lodge Bed and Breakfast, which opened for business in July of 2008. For the past nine years, those stars have lured my guests outside into the dark night, where they tip their heads back and look with wonder and amazement at a vast dark sky full of billions and billions of stars. In July of 2012, a couple of guys checked in on a Thursday afternoon for a three-night stay. They came from Boston, where Mike was a policeman and Nick was in medical school. They drove to town for dinner and returned around 8.30 and came into my main lodge building. We ate dessert together and had a friendly conversation. Nick excused himself, wanting to go on back to their room to shower and go to bed. Mike lingered, and we talked a bit more. I really appreciated hearing his perspective on being an openly gay cop on the force in Boston. I found out that he and Nick had been together for two years and were hoping to stay in Boston after Nick completed medical school. Mike rose and said goodnight around 10 o'clock. Fifteen minutes later, I noticed he was standing down at the pond shore with his head tilted back, looking at the sky. I decided I would join him for a bit of stargazing. When I approached, Mike looked at me, and I could see he was crying. He said, I haven't seen the Milky Way like this since I was a child on vacation with my family. This is amazing. Thank you. I thanked him and told him to enjoy everything he could for the next two days, and we said goodnight. As I turned and walked back to the cabin, I was thinking, oh, please, loon, call out right now. <laughs> or beaver, give us a tail slap. Or owl, ask Mike, who, 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 are you? Or come on, coyotes, make a kill and go absolutely wild for us. <laughs> of course, none of that happened. And that was okay. I was thrilled that Mike was moved to tears by the stars overhead, and I was content with the confident notion that he and Nick were going to have a wonderful, sweet weekend at Williams Pond Lodge. And they did. Following breakfast on Sunday morning, they loaded up their car, and I played my bagpipes for them as they drove out the road, heading home to Boston. About a week later, I received an email from Mike in which he clarified his emotional response to our star-filled sky. Greetings, David. Nick and I got home safely with no problems around 6 p.m. on Sunday. We had such a great time at Williams Pond Lodge and can't thank you enough for all you did to make our three-day visit really special. In fact, we both want you to know just how special last weekend was for us. You know, when you caught me in tears looking at the stars, I was also practicing over and over in my head the wording I was going to use when I went back to our room and proposed marriage to Nick. 
I guess I did okay because Nick said yes. We decided we wouldn't tell anyone until we had told our parents, but now that we've done that, we wanted you to be one of the first to know that your beautiful star-filled sky put me in the right frame of mind to pop the important question to the man I will be marrying. Thank you. And I say thank you to anyone who takes the time to look up at our beautiful starry skies in Maine and contemplates the vastness of the cosmos in relation to the small space and time we each are occupying on this pale blue dot. I'll wrap this up with a quote from Carl Sagan. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot the only home we've ever known. And aren't we lucky to be at home under the starry skies of Maine? Thank you. That was David Weena last week at My Maine, the state as experienced by local storytellers. The voice of our next storyteller will likely be familiar to many of you. Anu Dudley is a first-timer on this stage, but she tells stories every week on WERU on a short feature called Earthwise, which airs every Saturday morning at 7.30 and is available on our archives at WERU.org. A new story for the storytelling event last week was called Lost and Found in Matagamon. Uh, so this is a story about tourists in Maine. Um, Maine is vacation land, so of course we're used to tourists, and uh, we welcome them. Um, how many people here tonight are tourists? Good, good. I'm glad you're not embarrassed uh, to be a tourist, um, because a lot of uh, Maine humor is, of course, based on poking fun at tourists. Now, I, I don't have anything against tourists. Um, I'm a tourist. I've toured Europe and all of Canada and the United States, and one of my very favorite places to be as a tourist is here in the state of Maine. In fact, the, I first came to Maine as a tourist in the 70s. Um, but I, over the years, I have uh, come to realize that there are basically three kinds of tourists. One is what I call the checklist tourist, who wants to go to a place and see what that place is famous for, and checks off the sites, and doesn't really want to go you know, off the beaten path, and and is not really interested in having any new experiences. Uh, the second kind is what I call the adventure tourist, and that's the one who also wants to go to a place and see what that place is famous for, but this person really wants to get off the beaten path and have completely unexpected experiences and really discover stuff. The third kind of tourist is what I call the virtual reality glasses tourist. <laughs> now, this is a tourist who has a very preconceived notion of what he or she is going to see. Uh, they have put together a uh, sort of pre-programmed fantasy, and you know, they this is oh, this is all that they can see, and they can't see anything else, no matter what happens. So, this is a story about two tourists who came to Maine as uh, virtual reality glasses tourists. Now, the story uh, takes place in um, Matagammon, Lake Matagammon. It's called Grand Lake Matagammon. It's a very large lake. It's way up in the northeast corner of Baxter State Park. 
uh, which is, of course, way, way up at the top of the state. And um, Metagammon is bordered by Baxter State Park and then a number of private campgrounds and then uh, Penobscot tribal land. And so it's not really wilderness. There aren't very many people there, and you're probably not going to meet any, but, you know, it's not like the wilderness that you might encounter if you go way up north in Canada where there's nobody for hundreds of miles around. So uh, Baxter State Park has uh, a number of remote campsites that are on the lake of the the, sh the shore of the lake and also on the islands, and you can get to those if you get a reservation. Um, but for those of us who uh, were too late to get a reservation, you can just go to the what's called the Trout Brook Stream Campground, which is a very nice campground. It's um, primitive uh, outhouses, um, uh, fire rings, and so on. So I and um, <clears throat> a couple of friends and family members decided to go and explore Matagammon. We decided that we wanted to be tourists in Matagammon. <clears throat> uh, but we were we did it kind of spur of the moment so we didn't really get a chance <clears throat> to make a reservation. So we went to the campground. The first three days we spent, they were just glorious. We got up very early, packed a lunch, went out and explored a portion of the lake. And uh, Amy won't give me enough time to explain all of the wonderful experiences and, and discoveries and uh, unexpected events that we encountered. Uh, but believe me, there were a lot of them. But I will tell you about what happened on the third night, which is that we uh, in, had this fab fabulous um, light show, um, courtesy of heat lightning, that went on for hours and hours and hours late into the night. It was a wonderful experience and therefore because we stayed up so late we didn't get up that early the next morning so that's why we were in camp when this uh, car drove up and it had New York license plates and these two young people jumped out. They must have been in their early 30s and they started talking to each other and they were speaking in really loud voices. And we, so we learned that they were from New York City and, you know, that they'd come up here to do uh, this wilderness exploration, so-called. And, and now, I want you to know that I don't have anything against people from New York. Okay, I was born in Schenectady, and I, I got here as soon as I could. <laughs> But these New Yorkers, um, they had a car full of brand new equipment. They were, they were talking to each other. They didn't even acknowledge us, but they were telling each other about how much they were going to enjoy using their brand new tent and sleeping bags in this top-of-the-line cooler. And they were dressed completely in camouflage. <laughs> Everything, including a camo PFD and their, their canoe, was completely painted in camouflage. Now... I don't have anything against tourists from New York City who were dressed completely in camouflage, okay? I don't know why they were wearing, why they thought they needed to wear camouflage. I mean, it wouldn't have been my choice, you know. I, um, when I go out in the woods, I wear old clothes because I don't want to get dirty. But after all, somebody has to keep L.L. Bean in business, right? <laughs> so these folks set off. Uh, with her canoe down to the water, and as they uh, went down to the water, well, the woman exclaimed, let's go conquer the wilderness. So off they went. Uh, this, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, so this day, um, 
was our last day. So we took off and spent the whole day on the lake. It was wonderful. We got back a little late. We had a campfire, a nice quiet campfire. It was just wonderful. And the next day we were going to pack up and leave, unfortunately. So that's why we were still in the campground the next morning when around 8 o'clock this uh, forest service truck drives up and there were two wardens that jumped out of the truck and they came over to us and they said, have you seen these New Yorkers? You know, I don't think they came back last night. You know, they didn't make reservations at the um, at any of the remote sites. Uh, so we think that, you know, something's happened to them. So uh, we looked in their car and sure enough, their, um, all their equipment was still in the car. Their canoe had not been brought back. So yeah, we think something did happen to them. So one of the uh, wardens got in their canoe and started down uh, to, to the lake. And the other one went off to get a motorboat. So they would both went and looked for them. Now, you have to know something about um, uh, Trout Brook Stream Campground. It's not exactly on the lake. You have to put your canoe in the stream, and then you go down about a quarter of a mile, and that opens up into the lake. It's really easy to find the lake. I mean, you just float down the stream, and there is the lake. Okay, so that's, that's really easy. However, getting back is a lot more tricky because the stream opens up into this, basically this boulder field. And so in, in order, if you have enough experience, you know that once you get past the boulder field, you turn around and you look at the shore because what you want to do is establish some landmarks so that when you come back, you'll be able to find your way back into the stream because Matagammon has no street signs. <laughs> So um, the, uh, the wardens um, went out to look for these folks, and then a few hours later, later in the morning, we, we could hear their voices, the New Yorkers' loud voices, coming up the stream, getting louder and louder, and then they tramped into camp, and they were so angry. I mean, they had been forced to spend the night on the shore in the wilderness. And, you know, what was the matter with the men who, the people who, who managed Matagammon? I mean, they should have put up signs, you know? They should, they should have been rescued a lot sooner. And what about those wardens who were so incompetent that took so long to find them? I mean, as soon as they heard the motorboat there in the, on the water, they started jumping up and down on the shore, waving their arms and yelling. But remember, they were dressed all in camouflage. <laughs> So they were kind of hard to spot, and not only that, but the, the guy who was in the motorboat, of course, couldn't hear them yelling because of the sound of the motor. So it was the guy in the canoe who finally located these guys and then um, led them back to the campground. Now, I don't have anything against tourists from New York who were dressed completely in camouflage who find themselves stranded overnight on the shore of a lake. I mean, I've been stranded overnight on a shore of a lake, okay? Now, you know, it was a combination of bad weather and a sort of a misguided um, decision. But still, we didn't blame anybody for this mistake, you know? It was our fault. And we took responsibility for it. And then we, um, you know, found our way home. Which got me to thinking about these people. I mean, I wondered, you know, people with this uh, virtual reality glasses perspective, I mean, where did they think they were? You know, they, did they think they were at a wilderness theme park? 
Did they think that they were playing a wilderness video game? Or I think more to the point, this is probably what they did. They thought they were the stars of their own wilderness reality TV show, right? They were dressed in camouflage costumes. They were going out to conquer the universe. The, well, the universe is probably what it felt like to them. Uh, but going out to conquer the wilderness. And, but really, still, there were no real-life consequences here. Because, of course, if you have a reality TV show, remember, you got that whole uh, uh, filming crew that's in back of you? You know, and if something goes wrong, they can just bail you out. So there's really no real life consequences to this. I have to say, though, that I feel sorry for them because it must have been really scary. You know, imagine there they are, they don't know how to get back. They probably don't have a flashlight. They may not have matches because they don't really, they, I mean, they, they didn't think that they were going to need them, but even if they had them, they may not know how to start a campfire. And they had no tent, they had no food. And, you know, coming from a city, you, I mean, the, the city is lit up all night long, and it's really noisy. But suddenly they find themselves in this wild on the lake, you know, and it's dark. And it's quiet. And so all those ambient noises that are in the woods that you don't pay attention to during the day, you know, they start to kind of percolate up, right? And what about that gentle little lapping of the water on the, the shore? And maybe there's a frog that's sort of splashing now and then, you know? What's that? Or there's some mice that are up there on the, in the pine needle duff on the, on, the, on the bank, you know? What was that? Or, and that's not to mention the loons and the coyotes on the hill, and the owl over, uh, you know, in the tree nearby. I mean, it must have been really scary for them. And I, I don't blame them for thinking that they, they really did conquer the wilderness because they saw themselves as having survived a night in the wild, such as it was on peaceful Madagamon. <laughs> so, but they, they must have had a great story to tell their friends when they got back to New York City. Now, I have to hand it to them. I mean, they were undaunted. Because when they did get back to the camp, did they pack up and go home? No. They had a bite to eat, and then they announced that they were going to go off and hike on the trail that's around the, the lake. And I thought, you know, that's a really good idea, because that trail does have signs on it. And they won't get lost, right? I mean, you'd have to be really dumb to get lost on a trail that had signs on it. Although, <laughs> as they set off on the trail, the woman announced, let's go sneak up on a bear. <laughs> so I don't know what a, you know, a virtual reality glass experience would have been like sneaking up on a bear, but I just hope that nobody got hurt. <laughs> Thank you. New Dudley, one of the storytellers at WERU's third annual Maine storytelling event that was held at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport last week. It's part of Bucksport's Wednesday on Maine summer series. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Our next storyteller is Leslie Christeller. Leslie's from Lincolnville and has lived in Maine for three years. We first heard her at a storytelling event in Belfast where she told a hiking story that had the audience cracking up a year and a half or so ago. Last week in Bucksport, she had a new hiking story to share. Hi, um, my name is Leslie Christeller, and um, this is my first time in this venue. Um, I wanted to tell a little story about um, hiking one of the rail trails in Maine. I did this for about four or five years in a row. 
before I moved here, but it certainly was inspiration to move here. And um, in particular, um, on this particular journey, I was hiking the uh, Bangor Rustic Rail Trail, and I was probably, the way to locate it is, in your gazetteer, everybody got their main atlas, <laughs> is um, map 64. And if you look at the atlas on the back, the numbers go up as you get to the Canadian border. There's only, I think, 68's the border, so it's pretty far up there. Um, before I left every summer, I would have a gaggle of people tell me a million reasons why I shouldn't be going alone on a rail trail, which actually technically is marked with signs, but you'd be amazed how easy it is to get lost on the back roads up there. Um, so the different things that I was supposed to be afraid of were strange men from Maine. <laughs> I moved here. I have two neighbors. Strange men from Maine. No problem. Um, <laughs> I'm surrounded by them. Um, and, you know, bears. I've seen a few. As a matter of fact, I saw one up at Lake Matignon. I don't quite know how to say it. The one she was just talking about. Um, and um, things that go bump in the night. Um, getting lost. Falling down, breaking ankle, arm, leg, feet had pretty much any body part and not being able to drag myself out to the nearest road. So in spite of all these fears, um, I went anyway. <laughs> um, and um, I found myself one day, I think three or four days into my trip, I usually spent about a week. Um, and of course, also my, my bosses at work were like, you are coming back. And I'm like, maybe. Um, I don't know. Uh, could be. Um, if, you're, if you're really lucky. Um, so I was walking probably about 15 miles north west of Presque Isle, which has one airplane in and out per day. Um, and I was near little towns like New Sweden and places that had a post office once upon a time. So as I'm hiking this trail, I hadn't seen anyone all day. I had camped in some very not so great places for a few nights, like in the rail trail, <laughs> because the trees were so thick that there was no place else to camp, waiting all night for an ATV to run me over. Um, and. I found this beautiful, idyllic little campsite. I'd seen it on the map, but I never believed what I saw on the map. And it said, Sal Salmon Brook Lake. And I'm like, oh yeah, in Maine, ponds are like 200 acre lakes, and lakes are like two acre ponds. So this was one of those small little round ponds. Um, so it had, of all things, it actually had a picnic table with a shelter, which was so bizarre because it was a million miles from anywhere. I couldn't imagine anyone ever going there except a lunatic like me walking, you know, 20 miles from Presque Isle to go to this place. Um, so I was so thrilled with this. I set up my tarp and my um, ground cloth because I was on a minimalist weight kick. Not myself. I'm no minimalist with my weight, but with my gear I am. It's ridiculous. You know, 50 extra pounds on me, but 
20 pounds in the pack. Um, so I set up my tent tarp, my ground cloth, and I crawl into my sleeping bag, I go to sleep, and around, this was in June, so up in that neck of the woods, the sun rises about 4 a.m. and sets about 9, which is great at 8.30, 9 o'clock, not so great at 4 a.m. Um, so I'm here wrestling, and I'm in the middle of a dream, and I wake up, and I'm staring into two eyes. And I'm, oh my God. There's not just two eyes, there's about 30 or 40 eyes looking at me. And I roll over and I feel something that feels sort of like a jello shot. Not that I've ever done that. <laughs> but it was shaped like a little frog, okay? And I was surrounded by peepers. Evidently, I was in their mating territory. <laughs> so I hightailed it out of my sleeping bag. I was absolutely terrified. I just got out of the sleeping bag. I had like my little shorts in a tank top, no shoes, no nothing, and ran down to the pond somehow. Seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> Just like in those horror movies when they run into the garage. Um, so I ran down to the pond, and all of a sudden I hear, I'm, I'm like knee deep into the water, and it's all misty and beautiful and everything, and I hear clip-clop, clip-clop, clip-clop. Well, this was nowhere near an equestrian center, so <laughs> I looked across, and... Crossing the beaver dam was a young bull moose um, who I'm not sure had ever experienced anything yet in its life, but it was looking for it. And <laughs> it started snorting and stomping, and it was maybe about as far from me to that wall over there across the water, but started snorting and stomping and staring dead on at me. There was no one else there to stare at. And just looking at me and looking at me. And I didn't know moose could make so many noises. Um, so it was beautiful. It's like, oh my god, it's so great. I'm seeing a moose. Oh, crap. This is the non-bad side of the child version. Oh, crap. Um, <laughs> a moose and I started going through my catalog of you know what do you know about moose what have you read in your guidebooks uh, basically I can't outrun anything <laughs> obviously I can outrun small peeper frogs that's about it and I had read somewhere that they can charge it I don't know 30 miles an hour some crazy thing and it really looked like it was going to so as it's doing its little thing and I'm going back and forth between oh, my toes are in this muck of the pond, and I'm starting to feel things crawling on me, but I don't dare move. I turn my head towards the moose, and all of a sudden I hear what sounds like a 22 shotgun going off. Well, I know a 22 is not a shotgun. I actually fired a 22, that's about it. Um, but I hear this huge bang, and I turn my head, and it was a beaver. <laughs> slapping its tail on the water. 
a very pissed off beaver because obviously I was in the moose mating territory, the frog mating territory, and the beaver mating territory. And I was just like hanging out. So the beaver starts swimming around. I look back at the moose, and with the slap of the tail, it starts walking off, and I'm like, oh, thank you, I can move soon, because even though beavers are like the biggest rodents on Earth, I'm still a little bigger than a beaver, and I can go on dry land. So I can walk, outwalk a beaver, probably. <laughs> Just as the moose tail, as the um, beaver tail slaps, the moose decides, oh, it turns around to see what's going on. And it does a whole nother display with the grunting and the snorting and the pounding its feet and the staring. And finally it got bored and walked down the road and the beaver started swimming around. So I walked back to my campsite and it was really beautiful. The, the pond really was, was all this haze and this, by this time the sun was starting to rise and everything was rosy and pink. And, got back and I said, oh my God, I have a table to set up my stove on. If you've been backpacking, that's a major luxury. So I had a nice breakfast of spam and <laughs> spam and oatmeal and spam and oatmeal and some kind of dried fruit that was not identifiable any longer um, and some tea bag of something. And that's sort of what happens when you only pack 20 pounds in your backpack. You have a lot of unidentifiable foods. Um, ramen with Spam. Um, anyway, so the, 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 the sort of what happened for me in that story is that going through those things, I had very real fear, especially when I woke up not knowing what was there. I also had very real um, Experience of getting to see these beautiful animals and being alone on this rail trail in this campsite, um, carrying you know stuff that was going to not keep the mosquitoes out and or the frogs or anything, <laughs> was a wonderful experience. And and in truth, the the hiking experience of a woman hiking alone in the woods. And I've read all these websites and they they've got websites about this. It's crazy. Um, what it does for me is it makes my fears the right size. And it's not that I didn't run into some things. I, I've got lost. I've gotten lost. I have woken up a bear from a blueberry patch. Uh, they just lay in the blueberries, eat, and roll over. And then when they decide to stand up, it's a little scary. Um, so I think... The reason I like to do these, you know, week-long hikes is to experience fears that I can overcome and I can even enjoy. And I'm trying to learn how to do that in my life. And part of moving to Maine was experience the fear of moving someplace, uh, not knowing a soul, not having a job, um, not knowing what I'm doing. And here I am up in front of you telling my story. So I thank you very much.
That was Leslie Christeller last week at My Maine, the state as experienced by local storytellers. This was WERU's third year partnering with Bucksport's Wednesday on Maine Summer Series and the Alamo Theater on this Maine storytelling event. Be sure to join us next week for Act 2, which features Amy Rader, John and Katie Greenman, Brooke Ewing-Minner, and Naomi Graychase. You've been listening to Maine Current's independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. You can reach me at news at weru.org. Send story ideas and suggestions there for this or any of our locally produced news and public affairs programs, and I'll make sure they get to the right place. Our shows are archived at weru.org in the public affairs section of the website. Stay tuned for Democracy Now!, which is coming up next, and then Jazz Alchemy, followed by a southern wind here on your community radio station. WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org and next week is our summer fun-a-thon and a chance to become a supporting member of this great community radio station so please be sure to tune in then and make a pledge, help keep the media independent, help support your community radio station next week during our summer fun-a-thon keep it tuned here Support for WERU comes from our listeners.